Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with John Bradley West. I mean, this is uh, this is a great chat, and I had no idea what John's music taste was going to be. And uh, well, it's uh, it's a real mixed bag. Um, it was it was lovely to speak to him. Um, like so many of us, um, John was a firm fixture uh, on my TV set for many many years, um, and obviously playing the role of Samuel Tarly uh, in Game of Thrones. And he's just a, a really lovely human, as you're about to find out, because um, we're going to go in and we're going to talk about literally from you know his, his very early memories of music right the way up to uh, what's currently. Um, on his playlist. Before we get on with the episode, a few thank yous. I'd like to thank Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. I would like to thank 76 for producing this audio content for you. Uh, I'd like to thank you lot for just being kind and continuing to support Off The Beaten Track. And when, you know, I've been seeing you kind of commenting and sharing and tweeting so it all helps to get the word out about the podcast so thank you thank you so much um if you'd like some more content uh, and you'd like to support the podcast in another way then um i do have a patreon uh, and each week i put up video episodes and unique episodes and i put up radio shows on there as well and yeah and you can you know get access to to that and another couple of hundred shows in the archives over on patreon for i think it's 79p a month um and also speaking of back catalogs if this is your first time listening to off the beaten track podcast when uh, you finish listening to my smashing natter with john um go and check the archives because there's over 300 episodes of this podcast now you can hear me talking to if you like actors, you can hear me talking to uh, Maxine Peake, Amanda Abington, oh gosh, Joe Hartley, Thomas Turgus. Uh, I'm sure there's loads more that I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. Musicians, you can hear me talking to the Foo Fighters, uh, to the Killers, uh, to oh, Fatboy Slim. Oh, gosh, Motley Crue. So go go and have an explore. Oh, I thought with some more actors. Um, I've had... Oh, God, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten. No, it's gone. Um, but, yeah, 
there's there's stacks. So the best thing to do to find out all the names that I can't remember off the top of my head is to go and explore the back catalogue. And you can do that um, on Spotify, on Acast, on iTunes, or just head over to find out about everything I've just mentioned at uh, your one-stop shop, which is www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Okay, I know why you're here. And it's not for me telling you what you should be doing, what you should be tweeting and what you should be listening to. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track podcast with John Bradley West. Right, I've got to take a quick break in this podcast because I've got some super exciting news. Off The Beat and Track podcast is proud to go into partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. That's right. The Cacao Bar is not a chocolate bar. It's all the best bits of a chocolate bar put into a really exciting new alcoholic range. That's right. Gin, vodka, and a beautiful range of cream liqueurs. So one of the big bonuses of this partnership is obviously I'm super thrilled to have Hotel Chocolat working with us, but they sent me a great big box of this stuff. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. Go and check it out, www.hotelchocolat.com or over on the socials at Hotel Chocolat. But yeah, in the coming months, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved with competitions with us, to win bottles of stuff. There's loads of exciting things coming soon, and I can't be more happy to say that this podcast is in partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. All right, let's get back to the podcast. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. How you doing, John? I'm very, very well, thanks, Stu. How are you, mate? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Well, I mean, we spoke briefly uh, before this, um, you know, talking about how it's nice to kind of, you know, have a think about these songs, you know, in advance and, you know, in, in a current time when... You know, lots of the creative industry is still kind of trying to get back on its feet, you know. Yeah. So so before we get on to the, the songs that you've chosen, I just want to um, ask you how you found the last 14, 15 months as both John Human Being and John Creative. It's been, it's it's been, well, first and foremost, I think it's been, just just on a very surface level, a very worrying time. And one thing that I found early on was that because my sole aim in life for a while was to keep myself and my mum and dad alive and well and not bring them to, in contact with this thing which, you know, could prove fatal if they contracted it, sort of... I, I felt reduced to my very base sort of animal element. Do you know what I mean? People were saying, how do you feel about your industry not really being up and running? It's a bit like, I don't particularly feel like an actor at the moment. I don't really feel like anything except yeah. except the person who has to stay alive and has to keep my family alive. It's almost like we, we, we sort of reverted to an, a sort of Neanderthal self-preservational way of thinking. And that's all that occupied my mind for a while. And, it was it was only when it was only sort of after a few months that uh, that I started to get a bit a bit restless and feel that because one of the things about acting is it's it's almost unlike any other art form in so much as you can't really practice it on your own 
if if you're if you're a musician you can practice your instrument if you're if you're a painter you can still paint but but for acting it, it feels hard to just keep that muscle supple if you're just just left to your own devices with it so you do worry that if you leave it for long enough the muscle will start to degrade and then you'll come back to it and you just won't be able to do it anymore but luckily i was able to go to canada in the last few months of last year and make a film which which was which was a, a sort of a, a strange experience because one of the great things about about acting and you know the arts in general is it, it feels like the, most of the enjoyment of it is is a creative thing but it's also a social thing the way that you get to know other people by by you know going out for tea or or, or going out for a drink and stuff and that was all stopped so it was just literally work and then home and the the entire social aspect which i enjoy so much about acting was was removed from it and it felt more solitary than it ever has before so yeah how how are you like that how how are you you know you know on your own you know if you're basically finishing on set and then it's you know straight back to the hotel and you know how how are you with with them sort of situations um i i've always thought that i was better than i turned out to be (laughs) <laughs> I think that I think that it's, it's the same with anything. It's the same like if you tell yourself that you're having a day in and you, you just think, well, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm just going to put the telly on and put my feet up and stay in. You can enjoy that. But when you know a plumber's coming and you know you have to stay in, then that's when you want to go out. Do you know what I mean? So it's, true. It, it, it's so it, true. It's taking away the choice. So when it all started, I think, well, I don't, I don't mind being in. I can stay on my own, my own in the flat for a a few days at a time and stuff. But, but then when, when that agency, when that choice is taken off you, that's when you start to struggle, I think. And it's one of those things that I actually don't think anybody could have predicted how they themselves would react to all this in any, because it's such a unique set of circumstances. It's almost like you, you can't, you can't apply any other experience to it. And my girl, me and my girlfriend don't live together and she lives in London and I'm in Manchester. So we were, we were apart for four months at the start of lockdown. Wow. And then it was only when bubbles started to be a thing that we were allowed to be back together again. So looking back now, that, that's, that's a very long time to be, to be apart from your, from your partner, but we managed to get through it. I mean, before, before FaceTime and, everything that we've got now that makes it that little bit easier. It would have just been so much harder to try and navigate, sure. navigate those problems. So we found a way of making it work, but no, it was, it was, it was more, I, I struggled with it a bit more than I, I thought I would. And that's, that's fine. You know what I mean? I, I think, I think how, however you want to deal with it, however you feel you can get through it, then just go for it. I think. hundred percent, hundred percent. Before we get on to uh, the first track, are you a big fan of music? Enormous fan of music, yeah. Always have been as well. And one of the one of the things that I've been very I was very lucky with when I was growing up. I didn't feel lucky at the time. It's only when I when when I look back on it now and see what it gave me was I was I, w- I was lucky that my mum and dad are slightly older than my friends' mums and dads. So m- my mum had me when she was thirty eight and my dad was thirty six. So by the time I was they were in my late, their late forties by the time I was sort of going up into high school. And what that gave me was uh, a real appreciation of a very broad musical school 
And I mean, I, 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 they listen to, you know, music going back as far as the forties or forties, fifties, sixties. And then I was listening to all that from a very early age. And then my sister is 13 years older than me. So in the middle of that, to bridge that gap, I had her music as well that was playing all the time. So she was, she was big into, you know, that Manchester scene, Happy Mondays, and then later on Oasis and Simply Red. She was crazy about Simply Red when I was little. So I, I felt that I had a huge buffet laid out in front of me and I could, I could sort of pick and choose what I liked out of that. I mean, and and I've, I've still got that to this day. I'm completely uh, indiscriminate when it comes to the, the sort of music that I like because I, I was always contemptuous of that arrogance in people who say, or who said, oh, oh, the best music is now, and anything that's yeah. anything that's come before it isn't isn't worth thinking about or isn't worth assessing. And I just think, well, don't you think that for the best music ever to be created at the age that you're the perfect age to really appreciate it, don't you think that's very lucky and probably not true? Yeah, close. Of course, of course it is, but that's the sort of arrogance of youth. But I, I, I never succumbed to that. I, I've always known that there was value in value in all music, and I think that's reflected in this list. I, I hope. Okay, well let's 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 find out. So, uh, for track one, uh, John, I'm going to ask you uh, to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Right. Well, I've I've been obsessed with intros my whole life. Just that dynamic of getting something started. Be it okay. Be it uh, be it a live, you know, you know, in a, in a live setting, the way the the way a band walk onto the stage and launch into their first tune, the way a comedian walks on and and does his first bit, and and the way albums get started is always something that I found really really exciting. So when I was thinking about my favorite intro, it was always going to be the first track on an album as well, because it's like the intro to the album, not just the intro to the song. And I thought if you're going to do that. I'm, I'm going to be hard pushed not to pick something from ACDC for that, okay. for that, for that, because I, I just think they kick things off better than anybody. If you see, if you see them live, they start their shows in a, in a, in a breathtaking way that the dynamics that they have in the, in, in their intros and the way they launch into their tunes. And they've always had brilliant moments at the start of albums as well. So I had a lot to choose from, but I've gone for uh, the first track off their album, let there be rock. Uh, which came out in 1977. I think it's their first great album. The first two albums had some good tunes on it, but the, but the production wasn't quite there. And that that's also the the context of, you know, how do you start your first great album where you've got your sound right and it's sort of like the the purest's introduction. And it's a song called "Go Down," and uh, the opening the opening five seconds of it is one of the most exhilarating intros I've ever heard. It's probably the most exhilarating intro I've ever heard. It just starts with this, with this two chord volley. It just goes ba bow. And, and there's a little bit of feedback on the guitar and the power of that really hits you in your chest to put that album on, not knowing what was, what it was going to sound like and just being, having your head blown off by that initial, yeah. that initial firework must've just been a stunning moment. But the thing that makes it magic for me, it's not, it's not just those two chords. At the start, they leave three seconds of, of studio atmosphere. And other bands have done it before, but this is the most effective use of it I can think of. 
you can just hear the, the buzz, the electronic buzz of the equipment, but also the buzz of the atmosphere. There's a couple of little warm-ups on the hi-hat, and then the counting comes in. One, two, three, ba-ba. And what I like about that is, why I can listen to just that over and over again, is it really, you really get the dynamic of a band that's plugged in, turned on, and turned up and ready. Yeah. And I just don't think there's many things in the world more exciting than a rock band who are primed and they're ready to play. And it just, you're right in the room with you when you, you're right in the room with them when you hear that. It's, it's very exciting. I think what's quite interesting is the way that you decided to kind of also let it influence the fact that you wanted an opening track from an album. And, and uh, am I right? Are you 32? 32, yeah. So, you, you know, as in your kind of formative years of, of, you know, your teenage years listening to music, I imagine you was one of the last, that sort of last generation that was buying albums. If we look at how music's made now and how people, not made, but how people listen to music now, they cherry pick tracks from iTunes, you know, and, and I yeah. think there's still a lot of artists that record an album as an album, which I think is, as a 48-year-old as a man, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, grew up on that and I think that's so important and I love to hear a piece of art stretched over you know two sides of a record or a CD or, or however you choose to listen totally, to it yeah. and I think that's lost a little bit now um, insofar as the, the album as a concept doesn't seem to have that value as much as it did you know when, when I was growing up and, and, and obviously it has uh, influenced you as well and 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 with that, is that something that you still listen to music as as a body of work like that? And, and also, I'm, I'm going to load this question and ask you as well: like, How did you come to listen to ACDC? Because that was well before your time. <clears throat> yeah, I started listening to ACDC. I'll, I'll answer that one first. That was because my dad, my dad was 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 heavily into them, and I. I <clears throat> it's a thing about me when it comes to music. My dad was casually into them, like he was into a lot of other bands and a lot of other artists. But as soon as I lock into something, my interest in it sort of overtook his, and I became I become obsessive about things. If I latch onto them, I want to buy a M- music or, or anything. Mainly music, I think. It, 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 if a band strikes a sort of strikes something within me, I will buy everything. I will seek out everything they've ever done, and and I'm I'm not happy until I've completed that entire entire body of work and they've they've stayed with me my whole life they've been my favorite band ever since but later on we're gonna we're gonna talk about you know some of the musical movements that I allied myself with further down the line but they've always been my my constant uh and yeah it's I think I think albums are are very very important and I've always had huge respect for for bands that you know or bands or artists that, that that sort of rip up everything they've ever done before and treat each album as a completely new experience. I was thinking the other day, if now uh, <clears throat> Arctic Monkeys wanted to bring out a, a best of, it would it sequencing that album would be impossible because how do you, how how do you put something from their first album and something from their latest album on the same? They almost don't fit into the same body of work, and you know it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be that stark, and it, the differences don't have to be that apparent. But each album should, for for every artist, should be a 
something of a progression, even if it's not obvious. It should be there should be moments on each album that couldn't possibly have been on the last one because they hadn't reached that stage, they hadn't got that experience, and their their skill hadn't matured. I, th- I think if you're into artists that are always developing and always progressing and always want to do new things, just by by design of that, each album has to be something different. I I, I agree, but I, I unfortunately think that the industry, the music industry, isn't secure enough to support artists that wish to do that unless you've had that initial success of your debut album like the Arctic Monkeys did. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at so many of the, you know, like David Bowie being a prime example of an artist that every single record was different to the previous one. Yeah. And and Bowie's success didn't come for, you know, he was putting a lot of records out before he hit the, you know, the, 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 the big point of, of, of success. And... But at the time, the labels would support artists and would go, okay, so you've got, all right, you want to try something new here, right? Well, let's support this. Whereas now, unfortunately, because of, I guess, streaming services or whatever, I don't really know. But if that first debut album doesn't cut it, chances of you getting a second album are pretty slim now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that, I think, is a real shame that you don't get to see so many bands whose debut record didn't hit where the labels wanted it to make, you know, financially, and therefore, artistically, they don't get to to progress and shine, you know, and, and yeah. I'm sure they would go and create whatever, but it's not going to have the weight and the reach that it would have if it was in a, you know, with a with a, a, a major or, or a decent independent label. I think that's, that's the real shame there that I, I think is going to hinder that kind of creative process. Because yeah. there's also, imagine probably pressure from the label going you know imagine like if you look at that that debut album from the arctic monkeys to the second album you know i wonder if there was conversations going oh look hang on hang on don't 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 go too far here let's let's you know we know what everyone likes let's you know i'm sure that there must be conversations like that happening with record companies and bands all the time on you know off the back of like huge debut album success yeah uh, but obviously as an artist you i'm sure you understand that you want to progress and you want to, you know, create new things and develop your artistic, you know, your artistic, you know, output. Do you think that, do you think that it might have something to do with, you know, building up enough of an audience with your early work that record companies are confident that even if, even if it's something of a creative damp squib, they guarantee that enough people will still buy it. I I think so. I, I heard Alan McGee, once uh, of creation records talking about primal scream and and i'm sh- you know this th- this guy obviously signed oasis and and you know so many huge bands but all of them bands their album sales will fluctuate and and, yeah. and such whereas he always said about primal scream primal scream will sell the same amount of records of every record they ever release because they've just got a following that yeah. is so diehard and passionate about that band. And there's a band as well that will just change and evolve with every record. And I think they're quite niche to get a band that has that following, that's that passionate, certainly nowadays, that you yeah. can do that. It cre- do you know what I'm saying? Totally, yeah, because it creates really weird sort of chart anomalies, doesn't it, where every all of their fan base know what day their new album's coming out, so they all buy it in the first week. So it gets to a respectable chart position in the first week and then just disappears because everybody who's going to buy it 
buys it in the first week and then mm. then then sort of that's that's it and then they, then they've got it then but it's an interesting one isn't it that if you look at if you look at the sort of ultimate band in terms of rapid growth the the well for my for my money the beatles if if you think of what the beatles were offering in 62 63 which was sort of which was good time sort of party young raw energetic rock and roll if they weren't given the chance to if they weren't successful enough to be allowed to do what they did, they wouldn't have been introducing people to, you know, the person in the street to some of the crazy avant-garde experimental stuff that came just four or five years later. That's, that's the fucking crazy bit. It comes so close, didn't it? Yeah. It's like when you talk about the Beatles, you just think the Beatles have been around, like, you know, releasing music for years and years and years. It was such a small period of time, beginning um, to end of the Beatles. And when you think of them early albums, like you've just touched on there with that raw rock and roll, to fast forward a couple of years, and they're recording Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, and man. you just think, well, where'd that come from? Can you imagine, like, that must have literally have blown minds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, but but now that's the thing. Now, if 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 you know some bright spark would have gone, oh well, sort of rock and roll, sort of on its way out. Really, that was a, that was more of a fifty-eight thing. So we're not really going to bother with a second album, if you don't mind. Yeah. And then then the, the then the world would have been sort of robbed of that. So artistic growth, artistic growth just bears its own fruits, and and you know patience is a virtue. And I think you're right. That is that is disappearing a bit, but. You know, some of those bands that have been written off or fallen at the first fence, you wonder, you know, similarly what they would have come up with given their chance to to really mature properly. It's a, it's a sort of sad thought that drives you a bit crazy if you if you sort of think about it too much. Listen up. I've only got another new sponsor. Egg Fried. It's this super cool clothing label. And... If you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and, and the designer's kind of weird sense of humour in the mix, then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now, they do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all support in the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D, save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, and again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. Well, let's uh, let's go back uh... To, to, to the formative years for track two and I'm going to ask you uh, for the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you please I remember very very clearly and it's a song that still has an emotional impact on me to this day it's a beautiful song it's an old song uh, and I, I, I heard the version of it I've heard many versions of it over the years but I think I heard the version that a lot of people in this country will have heard first when it was used as the theme tune to uh, Birds of a Feather. Birds of a Feather used a theme, used a song called What Will I Do, which is an Irving Berlin song for their, for their, um, for their theme, sung by Pauline Quirk and Linda Robson. And I still to this day don't know why they picked it for that programme. It you know, it, it's an unbelievably sad, heartbreaking 
melancholic song with truly heartbreaking lyrics. You know, when I'm alone with only dreams of you that won't come true, what will I do? It's it, it, Just thinking about it now sort of brings a, a, a tear to your eye because it, it, what all great lyrics do is it really, it really crystallises an emotion. Like emotions are these conceptual things that you sometimes can't pin down and a great lyric will just say that's put so perfectly that they, I know that this person has felt what I'm feeling and they're, yeah. able to, they're able to articulate it in this way. But I remember watching Birds of a Feather when I was a kid and standing in front of the telly when this theme came on and just really sort of opening myself up to the emotion of it. I found it very, very upsetting. And I must have only been at four or five and, and just this thinking, I know this is really upsetting me, but I'm not going to stop myself from crying and I'm not going to stop myself from getting upset by it. I'm going to immerse myself in the sort of sentiment of it and the emotion of it. And it had a profound effect on me. And, and the thing that I find strange now was I was only a tiny little kid. So back then I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know what it was like to be in a relationship. I didn't know what it was like to have a breakup when I was four. I, I didn't really understand the meaning of the song in the context as it was written. But I remember, I remember letting myself imagine the emotions that I'll feel when my mum's not around anymore. And to just sort of giving yourself over to that emotion and to imagining that feeling is a very, very melancholy thing to do when you're four or five. But I remember thinking, well, when my mum goes and she's not here anymore, I'm going to feel like this. Yeah. I'm going to feel, you know, what, when, when I'm sad and my mum's not around, what am I going to do then? And... I remember, I remember live, like, like going on that emotional journey through those lyrics and getting so upset by it. And now I, I've fallen in love. And, you know, we were talking about lockdown before. I know what it's like to be separate from a partner. And I feel that I can now experience those emotions in the context that they were written and, and feel upset about it in a different way, yeah. but with, with exactly the same intensity. And, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's just a very, very vulnerable and very open and honest song and you know I, I i you know went through a period in my teens as i think a lot of people do of of shying away from emotion a little bit like it's not it's not it's not the done thing you have to you have to put up this very stoic very hard exterior because you don't want to be sort of letting things in but as you sort of as you sort of get older you just you just give yourself over to it once again and yeah. And it's it's nice to it's nice to be experiencing those kind of. As I say, nice. It's, it's bittersweet, but it's nice to know that those little vulnerable parts of you are still active and still bubbling away in there somewhere. Absolutely, and 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 with that in mind, if you you know if you wake up, John, you, you know, and you you're feeling you're having a low day, you're feeling a bit blue. Like, how do you approach that? You know, musically, is that something that? right, let's sling some ACDC on and power through this, or will you reach for something more sombre and, you know, and immerse yourself in that emotion for a bit and process it and, and, and almost not enjoy it, but just, you know, pr process it, I guess is the word. Do you know where I'm going with that question? Totally, yeah. No, I have a, I have a, very, uh, I have a very specific sort of strategy for when I, when I am feeling a bit down. I like to, I've, I've got a, I've got a drive-in playlist 
of, of quite a few songs now. I always, I always add a song, like, like a new song, if I think it's appropriate. And I just like to drive around just for just maybe half an hour to an hour and just, and just put this playlist on. And, and, and that playlist tends to be long, warm, slow sort of songs that you feel envelop you. Some songs feel like a, like a hug. You yeah. know what I mean, and there are a few songs, the sort, of, the, the sort of ones that always seem to sort of shuffle on. There's a few songs off the the last or the latest War on Drugs album. Oh God, yeah, that, that'll do it. That I like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So songs like Thinking of a Place oh. off that last album is just it's, just it's it's so cinematic and it's so mm. emotionally sort of available and comforting and warming. That drive round, listening to thinking of a place, or you know, just put, put that whole album on if you want and listen to it from start to finish. It sort of gives you what you need. It's all it's all the comfort yeah. that you sort of need at that moment. They're an they're an extraordinary band, and he's an, yeah, and, really and, and and he's an extraordinary figure as well. Just the just the just just the the technical proficiency of it, but in no way does it feel cold and and robotic in the way that some sometimes very proficient musicians can be all about the technical side of things and they can leave the emotion on the sidelines sometimes he it's it's a complete experience listening to one of their records and yeah that's my sort of self-medication for days like that it's not it's not so much shutting it out it's it's i suppose it's wallowing it a little bit and and wallowing in it and giving yourself over to it but in a way that feels comforting and not necessarily self-indulgent yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. For track three, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song that reminds you of your time at school, please, John. Yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to skip forward a little bit here because because I I actually want to talk about a, a sort of my musical landscape a little bit later on with one of the other questions. But when I think about school and the music I listened to at school, I remember in art. Um, because they wanted to foster a, a sort of creative atmosphere. They, they let pupils bring in some music to play. And it used to be quite often uh, jungle mixtapes. There used to be a lot of jungle getting blasted about of the little ghetto blaster in art. Or if one of the girls, there was a sort of group of girls in art, and if they had their way, they tended to bring Sean Paul Dutty Rock in. And it's, it's, it's so very much of the time. And when I hear songs from that now, I've picked, I've picked I'm Still in Love uh, from that because I, I, I can just picture myself being in art and, and, and messing around and, and listening to that. But it actually, it actually started off a, a love of Sean Paul that stayed with me my whole life. I think he's, he's musically... Because he's got because he's got this sort of party vibe about him, and 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 it's very up and it's very positive. I think he's been underrated in terms of his his musicality and his inventiveness when it comes to his music. One thing that I've one thing that I've, I value very highly in music is is uh, vocal melody and vocal phrasing. And I think he he he's underrated in so much. He'll always he'll always find a way of making a vocal melody interesting. He'll put a little twist in it when you think it's going to go down a certain path. In the last minute, he just does a little tiny vocal flourish where you think, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And now he's taken the song to a place that was, 
I never would have thought he, he would have. And it's similar in a way to, I heard Paul McCartney interviewed and he was saying that when he's writing a song, he will get the chords and then just sing the most obvious thing, like the most boring vocal melody that will come to mind. And then deliberately says, what can I do to this that makes it, that twists it and makes it surprising and, yeah. and, and stops it being boring. And it feels like Sean Paul does that as well. I saw him in, in, uh, in concert a couple of years ago in Leeds it, 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 was, it was just a great night, but he's, he's one of those people, one of those artists who's actually better than he needs to be. He could just keep putting out sort of dance hall bangers and have a, and have a yeah. great, great audience, but he always finds a way of making it musically different and musically takes you down a sort of musical diversions that you weren't quite expecting. So, yeah. Yeah, that was, I, I've got my art classes at school to, to thank for that. He didn't do much of my work ethic. To be fair, I was I was I, I fucked about in art like nobody's business. I don't even know what I was doing there. I shouldn't have took art. I should have done drama. And looking back, I don't know why I didn't do drama. Did you enjoy school though? I really enjoyed the the arsing about side of it. And looking back. Looking back, um, and, where, and where was it? Sorry, John. Where, where was school? I went to I went to St Paul's, which is in Withenshaw in uh, Manchester. And it's a bit of a rough school. It, it had its problems, but I was always very happy there. And I remember a, a teacher once said to me, "Actually, it's an extraordinary thing to say." Uh, they said, um, "You're the worst kind of pupil there is." <laughs> cheers. I went, "Oh, cheers <laughs> for that." They went, "They went because you're actually really bright." And you'll probably get by just on that natural sort of intelligence that you have. But you're sort of pissed, didn't say this, but you're pissing about is actually stopping people who might struggle a bit more from properly being able to concentrate. And they're laughing. I mean, the other, the other kids are laughing at your messing about, but they don't really know how much you're sort of hindering them. Mm. And that was, a real, that was a real guilty moment. That was a... Re- that was a moment where I thought, yeah, you, you, you're, you're, you're probably right about that. But then it sort of felt too late because you, you get your persona, you get your clowning persona or you get your sensitive persona and then you're sort of stuck with it. And I think, that, I think that's what happens a lot when, when people leave school and go into sixth form or, go, or leave and get a job. They feel that they can reinvent themselves again. A bit like, I'm sick of that class clown now. I want to be something else now. And I think I, I, I think I did that, but, but yeah, I, I only enjoyed school because I let myself enjoy it because my application was, was lacking somewhat. Did you like the attention of being the, the clan? Yeah, I did. It was, it was a way of being, uh, it just felt like it was a way of being accepted and I, and I've, I, I've processed that ever since it didn't feel like it at the time it just felt like an instinct at the time but looking back it was it was about and you know there's a cliche which says if you think you're going to be bullied you're funny and then that deflects the attention of bullies it wasn't so much about that it was just about finding my place just bringing something to the table and having a value because I was you know I was Maybe I would have been bullied. I, I wasn't ever bullied particularly, but I was I was overweight and wasn't very sporty. And at my school, sporting prowess was prized 
very highly. If you could get onto the football team or, 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 the, or the running team, whatever, you were sort of cock of the walk. And I couldn't bring that. So it was just about finding value. It was about, it was about earning my place at the table. And I thought that pissing about was my way of doing it, really. Was you confident? Outwardly so. Outwardly confident. And, and you know, didn't mind, didn't, mind, didn't mind sort of speaking up. But there were certain, but, but there, were sort of, there were sort of elements to things where, elements to certain parts of me and parts of my life where, I wasn't particularly confident talking about, you know, I, I wouldn't bring up my weight and I'd hope that other people wouldn't bring it up either. So it's a bit like, let's be really loud about this stuff. Let's be really loud about this area. And people, if people think I'm confident, they'll, they'll think I'm too confident to bully or, or, they, or I'm too confident to let my weight bother me and therefore they won't bother mentioning it. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's just all that sort of distraction technique. Know what your know what your safe ground is to be confident about, and cling on to that, and hope that the other stuff just gets pushed into the background a bit. I think that was kind of it, really. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Was you creative at school, though? Uh, not in any... I mean, I mean going, going back to that art class, my, my final art piece was an abomination. I got an, I got an F in art, which, which, you know, speaks volumes. But my plan for my final piece was going to be, I was, I was interested in football, but I think looking back on it now, I think I did this and I chose this art piece because I thought if, if I can keep it about football and sort of macho things, then any sensitive side that I had never needs to be brought into the spotlight. If I can keep everything about football 
then then I don't really need to sort of open myself up and, and be vulnerable because then I'm just one of the other lads. Just one, that's, that's the thing. You just want to be like everybody else. You don't see the value in being different. You only see the value yeah. in being like everybody else. So my idea was to get... A, I had a picture of Paul Scholes that I've got out of a, a magazine. And my idea was to cut it. Like, it was him on the pitch with a lot of fans in the background and stuff. My plan was to cut it at angles, like cut him diagonally down the face and then stick that to the page and then fill in, the draw in the rest of the picture, but just have these, like, patches of photograph with everything else drawn in. But I'm going to blame Sean Paul for this. My my, my work ethic wasn't quite there. And what I ended up doing was I just ended up... I ended up cutting the picture completely horizontally across the middle sticking that down and just drawing some legs but but <laughs> but, it, but the worst thing about it was that he's he's running like, like, like the top half of the picture is in motion and the fucking legs are just still <laughs> because i realized that, that don't deserve more than an f mate i, I know and I, re- <laughs> I soon realized it was beyond me i had big ideas i had big ideas about what because and then, then it just turns out that I just didn't have the... Uh, I didn't even have the ability to realise my own vision of what I wanted that picture to be. So it's just a picture of Paul's gold with some fat legs drawn on it with no knees and a pair of football boots sort of sticking out, <laughs> sticking out to the side like that. Now, I, I, I mean, I was, lucky, I was lucky to get an F in that. So whether you'd say that was creative, I'll leave that up to your, to your judgment. Well, one of the things that's happened in lockdown is is, is these things, Zoom, and, um, and and what that also does is enables you to be really nosy, and when you, you kind of have conversations with people, you can look over their shoulders into their houses. Yeah. Um, and just looking over your shoulder now, and, you know, you're, you're, you know you, you've mentioned Manchester, which for somebody who's 48, Manchester, when I was... 17, 18 was the place that I wanted to be. In 1989, there was nowhere I wanted to be more than the Hacienda. Yeah. And and then as you know, as times moved on through there, am I right in saying that's Eric Cantona on the wall behind you? It's Eric. It's a it's a signed picture of Eric. Yeah. Well, I mean, there you go. I yeah. mean, obviously, Manchester is dripping in football and music. And is that something that is unavoidable growing up there? And is it something that? That, that sometimes if everything's presented to you and it's all around you, you kind of just go, yeah, I'll leave that over there, but you know, I want to go and find my own thing. Or is it something that you just embrace and I'm trying to sort of word that right. Do you know where I'm going no, with, no, with that question? It's a great question. Yeah. I think that, I think that at the time it feels at, at the time it feels exactly like that. It's a bit, it, it, it's on your doorstep. It doesn't necessarily feel as, as special as it feels to other people, you know that, that familiarity breeds contempt, sort of thing. But looking back now, I realise that that it definitely seeped into the people of Manchester and gave them uh, a confidence and a and a swagger that that's bound to happen if you know if you if you are like me, uh, sort of the, the the product of Irish immigration to Manchester. Living in a living on a council estate, and then the biggest band in the country, if not the world, is our our two brothers who were the product of Irish immigrants in a council estate in Manchester. You think, fucking, I can do anything? Yeah, like 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 the, 
they're in exactly the same position as I am and look what they've achieved. It's very hard to, to, to find a world where that wouldn't have some impact on you and sort of inspire you and, and, and galvanize you. Yeah. And 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 football as well. You know, when you're, when your team's winning the league most years and what, and everything that's going on, that's, that that seems to be important in music at that time is on your doorstep. And yeah, there's something about, you do feel that, that, that you come from a special place and, and it sort of, it inspires you to try and do your bit to add to that legacy of, of Manchester. It's a bit, it's a bit daunting. It is a, it is a little bit intimidating as well. Cause you think all these people have come from this place. I better not let them down if I, if I try something, but it also gives you the confidence too, because they didn't feel inferior because they were from low income housing in the North, in the Northwest of England. And I shouldn't either. Do you ever, have you, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll pick up on and, and a few questions I want to ask you a bit later, just about, you know, leaving drama school and, and, and obviously joining the, the, the cast of a huge, huge show. Um, and, and just talking about how, you know, when you, when you look at Oasis and, 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 you know, the brothers essentially, they never looked like they didn't belong there. You know, they, they owned it straight away. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hear so many people talk and so many people have spoken on this podcast about imposter syndrome yeah. and, you know, and how you deal with that. that. That's something that strikes me that Noel and Liam never seem to have. Um, other, other than that, they, they put a very good front on it. Yeah. What about you? I mean, you know, to, to find yourself, you know, on the biggest TV show, you know, in the world, how, did, did you ever struggle with, with imposter syndrome? So, uh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I did. And, and, and part of that is because on a, on a purely technical level, I went to, a, I went to Manchester Met, uh, uh, Manchester School of Theatre, which is part of Manchester Met Uni. And that's a very, certainly was when I was there, a very, very theatrically focused training that you get there. Yeah. So part, part of the imposter syndrome came from the idea that I now had to take the skills that I have and sort of transplant them into a completely alien environment. Like I'd never been on a set before. I didn't know what a mark was. I didn't know how to pitch a performance necessarily. I didn't know... I had no idea just how long this kind of thing takes. The technical aspect of that kind of acting was completely beyond me. And I remember on the first day thinking, oh, I just don't, I just don't really know what to do. I'm just going to have to try and, try and watch everybody else and sort of pitch the performance based on that. And, and if it goes wrong, I'm sure they'll give me a chance to do it again. Just thinking that you're going to get sacked. Thinking that, there's, thinking that there's a chance that they're just going to go, why did, we, why did we trust that guy to do it? We've only shot a day. We can reshoot that get rid of him you know what I mean but in the in those moments I did I, I did sort of remind myself that you know the people who were in charge of this show David Benioff Dan Weiss and all our other all our other producers and execs they're not in the business of doing people favors they're not doing me a favor by casting me in this they can cast anybody they want they believe that I can do it and sometimes when my esteem was low I think I, I thought, no, but they, they think I can do it. Even if I can't, they think I can. And they've given me the job because they, they think I can really add something to this. And they thought that I was the best person in the world to play this. And 
A, that's an amazing compliment, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not going to throw it back in their face and say that they're wrong and say that I'm not the best person in the world to play. But also, it, it galvanizes you to not let them down. Yeah, they just think, well, they, they've invested all of this, this, you know, not necessarily money, but but they're investing their working day filming me acting. I better not. I better not let them down. And and and, and the confidence in your ability to do it comes from that I think you just yeah. have to you just have to sort of, you have to take that pressure and you have to turn it into something useful you have to you have to find a way of no I, I was b- before before they cast me in that I was I was you know this overweight fella from Manchester who's you know was at drama school didn't know the way it was going to go in the future self-esteem not exactly through the roof and then you know, turns out that all the time I was doubting myself, I've said this before, all the time that I was doubting myself and thinking, oh, I'm not good enough for this, not good enough for that. They were looking for me while I was thinking that. While I was in my bed, in, in my little council house bedroom in Manchester, they were scouring the world for exactly me because they needed me to do this job. And, you know, sort of, if, if that type of compliment and that type of confidence doesn't do something for your self-esteem at least then you've sort of not been not been paying attention really absolutely let's stay in the formative years for the next one and yeah. uh, and i'm going to ask you john for um the first song you remember buying from a record shop please there were two there, my first two cds i'm not i'm if you'll forgive me i'm not going to count them because because i don't think they're legitimate choices the first cd i ever bought well, hang on a minute. It's legitimate, embarrassing. Is that what you're saying? I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell you exactly <laughs> what they are. I'm not. I, I'm not going to shy away from it. But I just think they are. They're. They. They don't qualify. I don't okay. think they qualify for this for this list. And I, and, and you be the judge. My first CD I ever bought was WWF Wrestling Themes Volume Four. <laughs> right? Doesn't doesn't really? doesn't doesn't count, does it? Not really. No. Doesn't really count. And the second I bought was Chef Aid, the uh, South Park sort of soundtrack oh, album. Yeah, but, but I I don't think either of them are sort of me- valid enough musical statements to really find their way onto this yeah. list. So the first legitimate album I bought myself was Slim Shady LP. Oh, what a record! What a record! I remember being on holiday uh, in. Crete, I think, with my mum and dad, and my name is, my name is came on the the radio, and I remember just oh, I came on the stereo in the bar where we were. I was just thinking, this is so fun and so different and so naughty. I've never heard anything like this before. It felt, it felt rude and it felt transgressive, and I just thought this is this is for me. This is probably a year after it came out. It wasn't. It took me a while to sort of latch onto it and then until then I was just listening to all my dad's records and everything and then as soon as I heard my name is I thought oh this is this is the music of my generation yeah that's what that's what this feels like it feels like I'm taking that step now where I'm still appreciating all that music that I've always listened to but I think I found the musical landscape of my youth that's sort of how I felt. And then I bought Slim Shady LP from HMV in Stockport. And then I, that, that was the musical movement that I allied myself to for the next four or five years, all the way through high school, pretty much. I, it, started with, it started with Slim Shady LP and then 
next uh, then um, Dre two thousand and one, shortly after that, and sort of went all the way through to uh, to well to the to rise of Fifty Cent in sort of two thousand and three, and up to and including that. And even though I still listen to ACDC at home and and Beatles and all that kind of stuff, it was it was the hip hop movement that I allied myself to when it came to my friends and when it comes to being at school. At my school there was there was moshers, which 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 were sort of you know black hoodies, album artwork on the front of it, like sort of new metal, sort of grunge yeah. metal, sort of limp biscuit. Yeah. And even though it's funny enough, even though I liked guitar music, I didn't I didn't join that group. I joined... I mean, that's the, a natural progression, isn't it? From, like, to listen is. to the ACDC to then hear kind of melodic, powerful rock like Limp Bizkit and Papa Roach and all of them bands that come in that era. I know. Like, it's, it's strange that you'd kind of buck that for, for Dre and, and, and hip-hop. Maybe I was looking for something. Maybe I was unconsciously looking for something that I could rebel to. Because I get the impression that my dad would have actually quite approved of Papa Roach, for example, yeah. be- because it was guitar music. So he could see something in that that was that was a direct link between him and it, and he could probably see some value in it. It was almost as if I was saying, "I want, I want something that's completely." I want something that's going to shock my parents. Yeah, at that age, you don't want to be taking a record home that your mum and dad go, oh, that's nice. Exactly. It's not what it's about, is it? You exactly. Know? And, and that's, why Eminem, that's why Eminem was so enormous. And I think that's how you can tell how big a cultural phenomenon somebody is. And it goes back to, it goes back to punk. And it goes back to the sort of first wave of hip-hop with, with NWA and sort of that kind of stuff where even people who don't, like or dislike or even know their music have an opinion on them yeah the public had an opinion my mum and dad had an opinion of eminem which wasn't mm-hmm. which wasn't glowing but they'd never yeah. heard a song of his they just knew who he was because of, because of the stir that he created absolutely and you can trace these moments you know i'm sure there was parents whose kids were listening to nirvana going what's that scruffier but banging on about exactly Go back again and it was i remember sitting there with Top of the Pops watching the Beastie Boys in 1986 and um, my mum and dad being, what's this? And, yeah, like, exactly. and I felt a bit embarrassed that I was watching it, but I also felt a bit proud that it was like, yeah, this is, this is like my thing. This yeah. is like, this is, this is what's <laughs> happening now. And, that's that's and, exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and the thought of what that must have been like in 1977 to, to have seen the Sex Pistols, you know, yeah. and to have heard that, like what that, mu- like that must have been like, by the time we get to the Beastie Boys and Eminem and, and Nirvana, I, I guess that people were getting more and more exposed to kind of the more outrageous and, you know, and your Marilyn Mansons and things like that. But I think that, first, but then again, I say the first thing was the, the Pistols. I imagine when Elvis was grinding oh. his hips, you Absolutely. know, back then, people must have been, what the hell is this filth? Do you know what I mean? It's Absolutely. Like, and that, and yeah. that, that's the problem with the sort of... Um, that's the problem slash glorious thing about that progression. It always has to get more shocking. It has yeah. to get more taboo in order to be shocking to the people who subscribe to what was shocking before. Mm. just has to keep getting more and more shocking. But there's a line in, in My Name Is which sums the whole thing up. There's a line where he says... God sent me to piss the world off. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's just that's just every that's just everything about him and everything about those those figures that pop up every sort of five years. There, there's just sort of public en- public enemy number ones that just come out and they, they, they their chief objective is just to upset as many parents as possible. I remember when I was seriously into it, I bought myself. I used to get pocket money every week when I was sort of twelve. And I bought myself a. It was a, it was a knockoff. It was an unofficial book about Eminem, and it was mainly his most incendiary, unsavory quotes. It was it was such a, it was such a cheap book. Like the worst things he's ever said, and the worst things that Eminem's ever said are some of the worst things that's probably ever been said by anybody ever. And to see them in black and white was quite shocking. But I remember getting such a kick out of it, thinking, "Oh fucking hell, what's he saying now?" And I remember hiding it. I hid it in my in my room, <clears throat> and I remember going out one day and coming back in, and my dad had it on the table in the living room, and so he, I knew that he'd found it and he'd been looking at it, and I just went in and I looked at it and I looked at him, and his face was like thunder. It was just a bit like, and I said, "Oh, have you found that?" He went, "Yeah." He went, "Don't bring anything like that in here again." And I was a bit, I was a bit like, okay, I was a bit chastised, but at the same time, I was thinking, fucking yes, yes, this is exactly it. This is exactly it. I've joined, I've joined the the ranks of rebellious youth. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm I'm no longer in the safe the safe space of listening to music that was out in when you were twenty, thirty years old, Dad. I've joined yeah. the ranks of young people. And that felt really sort of exciting. It's, it's about it's yeah. that belonging thing again, isn't it? We spoke about that. It's about doing oh. things that you consider to be appropriate and things that you consider everybody else of your age to be doing. To feel part of that club was sort of ex- exhilarating, really. So yeah, I just yeah. love the fact that you, you, you walked in. It was like that kind of American pie scenario where he's found his dirty magazines, but he's just found that, <laughs> that Eminem book of quotes. <laughs> just brilliant. <laughs> Don't bring that in here. <laughs> Found it under his bed. <laughs> yeah, but the, but, but the fact that <clears throat> the joy in that, <clears throat> the joy in that comes from the hiding it. It it comes from the the transgressive sort of secret, illegitimate nature of it. If my parents, yeah. you, know, you know, people say, "Oh, oh, my parents are my parents are really cool." My parents sort of listen to Eminem and listen to Dre and hip hop and stuff. I think oh, I can't think of anything worse. I sort of can't yeah. think of anything more embarrassing than listening yeah. to that with my parents. I want to, I want to get on my parents' nerves, and I want them to disapprove. As soon as your parents Absolutely. approve of what you listen to, it's game over. Completely. So I really felt, I really felt part of that club. And then, yeah, then then Fifty Cent came along, and then I sort of it sort of left it to the younger generation then, and got into more alternative sort of indie stuff after that. But but in terms of my formative years of allying myself to a to a musical movement that was the musical movement of my my youth definitely well i mean that, that moves us on nicely um to track five because i'm going to ask you obviously after school comes you know college and and and, and stuff and then generally what happens there is, is clubbing so for yeah. that uh that question. I'm going to ask you for a song that soundtracked uh, your time <clears throat> clubbing. My clubbing years were a very, very brief period of time. 
As I think, as I, I, I think he's only good and proper, really. I think as soon as you're old enough to legally go clubbing at 18, there's not that long before you're sort of too old for it, really. I think my clubbing years were basically two years between 18 and 20. And we, we were all skint. Uh, we just tried to find a cheap, a cheap night. So most Still in Manchester? Time, still in Manchester, yeah. I was still, I was, this is sort of when I was at sixth form college so like 18 to 19 20 and we used to go to a night uh that was that used to be manchester met student union where i ended up going but i never went to this night while i was there but there was on saturday nights there was rock kitchen which was which was which was downstairs at the student union on a saturday night 99p bar 99p pints was upstairs on the top floor then you used to make your way down to rock kitchen later on in the night and i remember really not liking it at all I was always fucking roasting, I'm sweating, my feet were hurting. I was I was fat as well, so I couldn't get like nice going out clothes. So I used to wear this jumper, and I just used to, everybody was jumping up and down. It was so loud. I just I just remember standing there thinking, I don't, I'm just not getting on with this at all. And every week I used to go because my mates were going. Didn't really didn't like the music either, really. And that didn't help. But then later on, when we started to go to in, the alternative indie nights, like we used to go to Fifth Avenue and 42s and Venue in Manchester. And they were more alternative and indie. And that was the type of music I loved at the time. But I still didn't get on with it because I found the environment so unpleasant and uncomfortable. So I was standing in Rock Kitchen at like 2 o'clock going, fucking, I can't wait to get in. Just can't wait to get in. <laughs> My mum usually left me a sandwich as well. So I can't wait to be getting in and having that sandwich. Get, my, my, mates, my mates had to... My mates always st- just get value for money because we were all so skint. They insisted on staying until the very last second. Then we had to get the night bus. And then because it's a night bus, it drops you off miles from your house. So we had to walk fucking miles as soon as I got off the bus, probably needing a shit, as I, as I sort of always was for those walks home, just, just limping home, feet just freezing cold because I've been sweating all night, my feet killing me, needing a shit. That sandwich must have really fucking delivered, mate. <laughs> I know, I know. Just thinking, oh, I can't wait to... I just cannot wait to sink my teeth into that sandwich. And, uh, but towards the end of the night, in amongst all this heavy death metal and and all that very, very, very loud headbanging stuff, you'd be guaranteed a couple of hip-hop tunes between sort of two and three. And that was sort of manna from heaven. That was songs that I knew and songs that I liked and songs with a different energy to them. So I used to wait all night for them and they got me through sort of the last hour of it. And... Most of the time, it was there, were, there wasn't there wasn't many songs that they chose from. Next episode was quite often, but the one that I'm going to pick is "Party Up" by DMX, which was oh what a chance. every every single week at some point you got "Party Up" by by DMX, and that the funny thing is when it used to come on, I used to go crazy. I used to, I, I used to, I, I used to just absolutely, it blew my mind whenever it came on. The only time I was sort of animated and enjoying myself all night. But I used to look around at everybody else in the club and they all were lifted by it as well. And they all went crazy and started jumping up and down and singing. After just standing there sort of shuffling and shoegazing, they all were lifted by party up as soon as it came on. I remember thinking, oh, fucker, maybe none of us should be here. Like maybe yeah. no, but maybe we should all go to a hip, try and find a hip hop night and go there because you all seem yeah. to be enjoying this. 
a lot more than everything else that's been. I love the fact there's 300 people there just kind of moshing, but all secretly thinking, I can't wait to go in for my sandwich. My sandwich, yeah, yeah. And, and, and DMX is going to give me the sort of kick up the arse that I need to get me through that. The place used to erupt when Party Up came on. And it's, you know, having said that, I remember I love that song so much and everybody used to be sort of joining in with the chorus and, and bouncing up and down and, and he'd turn it down for the chorus. Everybody used to be like, oh, God, make me lose my... And, and, and we, were all, we all used to join in with that. But I realised when I heard it out, when I properly listened to it once, when, you know, out in the wild somewhere, that I was singing it wrong the whole time i thought okay. when 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 everybody used to say you're gonna make me lose my mind up in here up in here yeah. i thought that he was singing and i used to sing at the top of my voice nobody i used to say you're gonna make me lose my mind fucking yeah fucking yeah <laughs> i mean i quite like that <laughs> i like it as well but but now i think about it because nobody could hear me it was fine but if nobody else was there and the music was not playing. You'd just be a man jumping up and down on the spot going, <laughs> fucking yeah, fucking yeah. And so, so that, was my, that was my, you know, lyrical mishearings aside. That was the song that, it wasn't the constant soundtrack to my clubbing, but that was the most important song of the night as far as my clubbing experience was concerned. It was the song that I looked forward to. And, you know, we, 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 we lost him a few weeks ago now. And... Mm. That's one of those, one of those, he's, he's one of those artists and, and I think we'll continue to be one of those artists that the energy that is captured in those records and those vocals, they're never going to get any, they're never going to get weaker. They're never going to be diluted. The power of those, of that delivery and, 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 and the lyrics, but mainly the power of the performance is always going to be preserved. It's, it's, it's like some, some alchemy. Some performers just have that conviction and that attack, which means that, that that energy is going to be preserved within those records, I think. Definitely, and it's that attack and, that, and, and the way that he delivered his vocal that I can see why that would work when, it, you know, top and tail with, with, with metal. True, you know, yeah. If you, look yeah at, true. if you look at Rage Against the Machine and things like that and... DMX, that works with things like that. It's just got it's so abrasive. His voice wasn't it, and it yeah. was just it was just it was, it was like he was absolutely spitting fire. And it was, yeah, I, I get why DMX why that would sit within you know aggressive rock music because you know it's fundamentals as much as he's, he's singing about you know partying. Yeah, it, it's it's he means it, doesn't he? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And and you know that's. It's just that concentrated energy where you feel that he's he's using up every calorie in his body, spitting every single one of these these syllables out. There's nothing, never never phoned in, never half arsed, always totally committed to every single word that he that he spat into that mic, and yeah. because and because of that, it's just alchemy and it's 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 just magic and. That's you know sometimes you know he 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 recorded that vocal in one day, probably, and the sound of that one day is going to be played forever and ever and ever, and it's never going to feel less powerful than it felt on that day or the first time you heard it. It's just it's just, it's just never going to diminish. I don't think if it was going to diminish, it'd, dimin- it'd diminish by now. But every time you hear it, it still 
still shocking and still startling. You think, fucking hell, he really means it, this guy. Yeah. And I just, it's a very, very sad loss. Again, you know, complex guy, not not necessarily an easy, an easy time of it. And you know that there's is an interesting study in a lot of things when it comes to damage and everything. But in terms of taking some of that pain and putting it into a, putting it down onto a track and putting it into a song and making art out of it, he just does it in a in in a way that. Is more powerful than the vast majority of people have ever managed before, I think. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Could take you home for track six. Uh, Favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. And boy, oh boy, you've got a lot. We've not done bad, have we? We've not done bad over the years. I was researching this, actually, and I found that if we wanted to do historical counties, which we won't, but if I wanted to be spiteful and say, let's do historical counties, I could technically have Manchester and Liverpool in my county. Okay. In which case, but we're not going to do that because all bets would be off and it just wouldn't be You're spoiled as it is. You can't have Liverpool as well. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. So I'm going to go for, I mean, there's an awful lot. There's an awful lot and... I've gone for, in terms of my favourite, it's, it's an obvious choice. You, for these things, as for a lot of these questions, you'd like to go with something a bit less well-known, a bit obscure, but I think you just have to be honest. You have to say, if, you, if your favourite favor is off one of the biggest selling records of all time, then, then it, that's just the fact and you're stuck with it. So I've gone for some might say, because... We were talking about DMX then and about, about you know, that energy that's been, that's been captured on those recordings. There's something about this record as well that after all these years is still so euphoric. 25 years later, there's still a euphoria to it and a passion to it. And it was back when Liam's voice, this is always going to change because of age and, you know, the life that he lived. But his voice back then was so pure and so open and it had a naivety to it that it feels like a, it's always going to feel like a youthful record. And I think that's why, you know, teenagers still get into Oasis because they feel that it still speaks to an aspect of their youth. It's about crystallizing that thought again, crystallizing the emotion. <clears throat> and Noel, Noel's sort of disparaging about his own lyrics sometimes, he just says that oh, they mean nothing and. It just depends whatever they mean to the person listening to it. But, you know, some might say you don't believe in heaven. Go and tell it to the man that lives in hell. There's, you can sort of build your whole, your whole life around a lyric like that because it's, it's, it's about let other people dream. Don't be too quick to shoot other people's dreams down because you never know what that dream means to them, really. You know what I mean? Just because, just because, because you're, in a, you're in this sort of cynical high tower where you can look down on people who still dare to dream about stuff doesn't mean you've got the right to take people's dreams from them or give them a reality check or tell them that it can't be done. And there's something about 
there's something about a youthful spirit that's been captured in that record. And, you know, the lyrics are one thing, but the, the space that Liam finds in his voice, you think he's reached the very top of his register of his lungs. And then for, you know, standing at the station, there's a, he finds more room from somewhere at the top. What a chorus that is. What an unbelievable chorus. And he finds the room, the attic in the top of his lungs to really pitch that even higher than he's been singing the rest of it. The climb of that vocal and the sort of euphoric, that sort of euphoric climax that it, that it reaches. It's never going to, it's never going to not affect me whenever I hear it. And, you know, that song born out of a council, once again, born out of a council estate, two miles down the road from me in Manchester, that's affected young people all over the world and changed their outlook and dragged them up from whether they feel that whatever they want isn't possible. But the power of that record. So, yeah, it, it, it's not an obscure choice, but it's, it's, it's the, the truthful one. And I, and I think Noel was at his absolute peak as a songwriter on, on that album, uh, personally. I, I don't think he's ever released an album anywhere near as, 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 as good as that, that second Oasis record. Um, and to, we, we spoke at the beginning about how people listen to music now and they cherry-pick tracks and, and we, we touched on the charts and, and things like that. To kind of give listeners that may not be completely up to speed on, on record releases around that time. When you'd release a, a, a CD single, you'd have to uh, have a, you know, what would have been a vinyl, would have been a B-side, but on CDs you'd sometimes have three tracks on a CD single. Yeah. To give people some idea of just how prolific and confident he was as a songwriter when he released Some Might Say, the bonus tracks that he gave away as b-sides on some might say acquiesce wow and talk tonight <laughs> oh dear me just fucking throwing them away most yeah. bands don't write songs as good as that for their greatest ever record 100 percent. just put it on a b-side yeah 100 percent. and don't Unreal. you think and don't you think that that's <clears throat> that what a, a lot of my a lot of my favorite bands in exactly that, with exactly that system, Oasis, the Beatles, and the Smiths as well. The Smiths had that. In terms of a lot of their greatest songs were born out of the necessity of needing a song to record. It's a bit like, right, we need a B-side for that. It's not like <clears throat> they're necessarily waiting for moments of inspiration to strike, sitting around for six years between albums, waiting until inspiration hits them. It's a bit like, right, we need a song for this B-side. All right, well, let's think of one then. It's like a workmanlike approach. It's, to, it's ridiculous to creating these unbelievable, unbelievable songs. They created them out of necessity because they needed a song, and the song that they wrote just happened to be fucking amazing. Yeah, and and to what we touched on with the Beatles earlier, and if we look at those, you know, those first three Oasis albums uh, and and the entirety of the Smiths' career, very short space of time, and exactly. the creative output is ridiculous. When you look at the Smiths as well. And and I've, I've listened to um, a fair few interviews with. Um, they're, they're, they're one of my favourite bands, and yeah. Johnny Marr to me is he's, 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 he's the god of gods. And he was basically managing the Smiths as well. Oh, totally. At the exactly. same time, and I think and I think he was twenty. Yeah. And like I know what I was like at twenty. I wouldn't be writing the amount of songs that Johnny Marr's writing and managing one of the biggest bands you know that the, the country had seen. It's yeah. like 
just incredible. That, <clears throat> and and so what I, I, I want to sort of finish this question on before we get on to the last track is we, you know, as somebody that was a, a, a you know a very good age to cat to catch Oasis when it happened. It was so exciting and, and it felt overnight. I remember seeing them on, on the on the word uh, doing Supersonic and I was like, who the fuck is this front man? He's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then all of a sudden the press got hold of Oasis and it was just so exciting and they just become this huge phenomena. Uh, and it's obviously, you know, the whole rock and roll dream they lived it. So... Where I'm going with this is, I just want to ask you as, as as somebody that, you know, would stand in a nightclub and didn't particularly want to be there and, you know, yeah. would rather have been at home. How did you deal with coming from drama school to then, uh, you know, as mentioned, being on this huge, you know, TV show and becoming instantly recognisable? Like, how did you <clears throat> deal with that as a, 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 as a person? I, I dealt with it by... Um... By consciously not buying into it wholesale, I think that that's that's the mistake. Was that, that hard I, though? Um, not particularly hard because because you know people people used to say, "Oh, has it changed your life?" And you used to say, "Well, yes, it has," but that sort of implies that I had a life that I was desperate to change. And yeah. in actual in actual fact. I was, you know, I, I had sort of some self-esteem issues and things and wasn't particularly sort of happy with myself a lot of the time. But in terms of my family and my mates and the environment that I grew up in, I was really happy there. And and I think that because I've had that, I've kept that as a constant. I've always lived in Manchester. I've always sort of seen the same mates from school and, and, and uni that I've always seen. They're still my best mates. I didn't, I didn't move to LA. I didn't even move to London. I, I kept my circle around me and it, and it wasn't, it, it's not so much of a thing as, oh, I better keep my circle around me just in case I, I, I change. It was just about, I wanted to keep them around me. And I think that that's it. You get the best of both worlds then because you get to go abroad and you get to go to LA for your premieres and you get to shoot this show and you get to go and have that experience, but then you get to come out of it as well. And then you get to sit around with your pals who are all really chuffed for you. And you get to tell them about it. And then you get to live a normal life for a bit. Which means that the sort of riding sort of high on the hog when you do go to all these things, they stay special. And they never become mundane. It never becomes boring. And I think that that's how you just, just sort of finding that balance really. Because I think that's why people go... That's why people do lose it because they they buy into that hype. They move to these places and then suddenly they have a couple of bad shows or a couple of bad reviews. Then suddenly that world doesn't really have time for them anymore. So they're kicked out of that world and they can't go home because they've told all their old friends to fuck off and they don't want to know them anymore. So so then they're suddenly adrift. But I've I've kept both my feet firmly planted in. You know, I I I, I sort of. I've, happy in my in my flat here and everything and i'm you know i'm I'm not i'm I'm sort of comfortable in in a sort of reasonable way but i just i just never felt never felt that i was sort of scrambling to get out of anywhere or or you know move into different circles that felt closed off to me before i'm just i'm just sort of the same 
bloke with the same mates who gets to do these mad things every now and again. And I think that that's how I, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thing and there wasn't, there was no method to it, but looking back, that's how I sort of managed it by accident really. Yeah. Before we get onto the last track as well, one of the other things that I've noticed just over your shoulder, uh, is a guitar. Yeah. You play? <clears throat> not particularly. No, I know. I, I, I've not got the, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a drummer first and foremost. Okay. Yeah, so I've always, I, my dad, I was always tapping with sticks and stuff from being a young kid. My dad just lost his mind briefly and, and got me a, a practice set, an acoustic practice set, when I was probably 12. And they were in my tiny bedroom. In, and I, God knows what the neighbours think. I still don't know to this day how they ever put up with it. But I, I had a drum kit when I was 12 and, and sort of, practiced and 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 i've got i've got a practice kit still uh, uh, an electronic kit now but I, I i love it so much and I, I was just never dedicated enough to to get amazing like that thing of playing every the ten thousand hours thing i never sort of had that i'll go through periods of playing every day for a couple of weeks and then not play for a month and then and then play again for yeah because i've I've always wanted to you know my agent's been in touch and she said like oh do you want to do you want to do this you know this this drumming thing or do there's a part coming up where you know you you might be able to do a bit of drumming and i've always been resistant to that i've always been about i want to keep this as something that's for pleasure alone yeah i don't don't want it to be associated with the stress of work or having to get to a certain level and the guitar it's even it's even more casual than that. I've never had the I've never had the the mental stamina to learn a whole song. Even I, I know a lot of chords and I sort of fiddle about, but it's purely for my own. I'm more likely to sort of happen on something that I like the sound of by accident rather than learning somebody else's song. Yeah. It's just, it's just about it's just about making the noise. I find it very very relaxing. I've never had any real ambition to 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 do either drums or guitar in any sort of entertaining capacity. It's just a sort of, it's just a, it's just a therapeutic, nice little place to go to. And I want to sort of preserve it as that really. Brilliant. Last track. I'm going to uh, give you an opportunity to play DJ and turn someone onto something new here, John. So I'm going to ask you please uh, for your last song for a song that many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Yeah, this isn't this isn't a, a, a deeply obscure one. I I heard it on my on the radio about twelve months ago, on Six Music, and uh, it's a song called "Living." It's by an artist called Jetta. She's doing she's doing really really great things at the moment. This is a this is a sort of nineties dance infused infused. Um, yeah, yeah, a, a, a dance track. But once again, there's dance tracks and there's dance tracks in the same way that, you know, Sean Paul could just do by the numbers dance hall, but he chooses to make it interesting. I've always loved, you know, interesting vocal melodies are the thing that have always got me into music. And this song, Living, has got three really, really beautiful, inventive little vocal patterns in it. There's sort of an intro, then there's a verse, then a bridge and a chorus, and each of them on their own are musically very interesting and, and yeah. twisty, twisty, turny, and 
they have a really nice melodic form and structure to them and they're surprising and 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 the performance is great but Jetta from what i can gather just is is a completely self-sufficient musician who records in her bedroom in liverpool records on home equipment programs the whole thing herself i think even manages herself puts it out herself and the technical feat of the amount of space that she manages to get in these instrumentals there's nothing they're they're lush and they've got a scope to them and they've got so much atmosphere and so much depth and the way the instrumentation builds up she's she's we were talking before about about what what record labels will and won't let you do she's completely bypassed it yeah a, a, you know a jetta song is exactly the song that she wants you to hear because she's in charge of every single element of it. Yeah. And I just think it's 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 a brilliant track, but it's also a, a, as a sort of story and as a sort of way to be an artist. It's quite inspirational as well that she's just that she's just you know ploughed ahead with her own thing and she's coming up with these these amazing amazing beats and amazing instrumentations but great vocal performances as well with a lot of care given to the you know the structure of the melody she's she's so impressive and yeah i heard this on the radio about 12 on six music about 12 months ago i've been got, been getting very much into her since she's you know she's she's known to some to a select few but i just don't think anywhere near enough people appreciate her as she deserves to have so I play I play this to any I play this to anybody regardless of their musical musical taste or anything just for the just for the the achievement of the atmospherics and the dynamics of it and what a great song it is I think it's just a really inspirational piece of work. Well, we put together a, a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast uh, yeah. with all of the the song choices that you've you've picked and and I'll, I'll throw on some of the other ones that we spoke about as well. Um, so. Jonas, we find ourselves on a road out of you know a very strange uh, period, uh, you know, for, for for the whole world. We, I mean, we're recording this on the the tenth of May. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, lastly, as we find ourselves, you know, on the, on this road out of uh, the pandemic, what are you looking forward to um, personally uh, from the rest of of twenty twenty one? And what's gonna what have you got coming up professionally? I'm um I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to gigs. I'm looking forward to gigs so much. The last the last gig I went to was a was a was a package thing kiss kiss blast off. And it was like a sort of package thing. It had Shaggy on it, it had Nelly on it. It had it had these sort of this sort of early early sort of 2000s legends on it. Salt and Pepper were on it. And we went into lockdown, I saw that in Manchester, we went into lockdown a week after. And it's a bit like, God, if I'd have known that was the last one for 18 months, whatever it's going to be, I'd have enjoyed it even more. But we just didn't know which way it was going to go then. So, funnily enough, I've booked to see Snoop Dogg at the same venue exactly two years after that for the 5th of March or whatever it is. So that's going to be a very neat boxing off. The last time I was here was two years ago before all this shit happened. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to, to football being allowed back into Old Trafford again. And also just looking forward to getting some work out. We, I, I, I did two, I did a filming towards the end of 2019, 
a rom-com um, called Marry Me, which is which is me and Jennifer Lopez, Owen Wilson, and a, and a few other really cool people. It's a really, really cool film. We're really looking forward to people to see it. That was 2019. That's been put back twice because of nobody being allowed in cinema. So that's gonna, by the time that comes out, it'll be two and a half years since we shot it. The film I did last year with Roland Emmerich, that'll be out probably next year as well now. So it's just looking forward to people seeing what I've been up to. Just assuring people that I've not sort of fallen off the face of the earth, but yeah, getting all that out, just just all the little things that we didn't realise were special. All the all the little all the going out for going out for meals, going just having the freedom to just do whatever you want. I think that's 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 the unifying thing. Whatever that is, just not just if you fancy a day in having a day in, but it's because you want one. Yeah, not 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 because you've been told that you have to have one. I think that choice is what people are looking forward to getting back. John, it's been absolutely delightful talking records with you, mate. Thanks so much for your time. It's been been really really fun. I've loved it, Stu. Thank you so much for having me on, mate. I love the show very much. Oh, thank you. There you go, people. Ah, oh, what an absolutely. Delightful human being, Johnny's. Um, that was such a nice conversation. Um, loved the fact that the genres of music pinballed everywhere. You know, there was no theme that run throughout. Um, loved the fact that, you know, I guess if there was a theme, it was his love of vocal melody. Um, absolutely loved the uh, track too. You know, to, to pull on something as simple as a, a theme tune to a comedy TV show that, that stopped you in your tracks and made you stare at the telly and, and, and experience, you know, sadness, I guess was, was, was lovely to, you know, to hear that. And again, just that, that honesty that, that, that guests bring to this podcast of not trying to, you know, be cool. It's like, no, this is what I was listening to. And this is why it impacted me. And this is how I felt. And I think that's, that's great. And yeah. So huge thanks to, uh, to John for giving up his time to come on the podcast. Thanks to you lot for giving up your time to listen to this podcast. And, uh, and as mentioned at the beginning, uh, go check out the, the podcast because there's a myriad of guests. I'm not going to try and remember them and, and, and tell you all of that because I tried that in the intro and, and I couldn't even remember half the names because there's so many now. Just go and have a look on all the usual places. And if you, yeah, you need a one-stop shop, it's the website, which is www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. I'll be back next time. Be excellent to each other. I'll see you soon. Much love. Bye-bye. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Eat it,